Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Ready or not. <laughs> I wonder how that guy who recorded our intro is doing. Uh, he's like the guy, um, I can't remember that fucking guy's name. Remember that black dude yeah, that was yeah. homeless, that had, the, had the golden voice? He didn't voice. have a name. He, the, gold, the guy with the golden the voice, that was his voice. name. Yeah, yeah. That's, like, that's the guy that does our intro. Yeah, that guy was from Columbus, Ohio. He was. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Did he say Ohio with an A? No, I just said it that way because we're... You know, Hicks and Hillbillies here. Oh, we are? Or is it because you just came back from Tennessee? Did you bring that back it's with you? It's been a while, but it's been like three weeks. I want to go back, man. I love Tennessee. Dude, I'm telling you, it's, it's so beautiful there. So we have like natural things here that are beautiful too. You live very close to one of them. Uh, you know, you. I think, I think there's something too that we see Lake Erie frequently. Yeah. So it doesn't have that magic. I remember the first time you came up here when we were teenagers, you saw Lake Erie and you were like, it's the ocean. <laughs> Cause it's big man. Like it, like if you're used to seeing small lakes and ponds and shit, Lake Erie is massive. Absolutely. Um, so it is, there is like an element of wonder to Lake Erie, but we see it all the time. So it, some of that is not there as much, but I do think that there is just m- even if we did didn't see it all the time, if you like, you know, we transported from you know flat ass Kansas uh, to Lake Erie, and then we teleported to, you know, the not the Rocky Mountains, the Smoky Mountains. Mm, yeah, I do think that there's something more, just like awe inspiring about mountains, man. I don't know. It's there, there's something <laughs> it's, about it. It's interesting. You bring up mountains. I just uh, saw this thing on Twitter the other day. It was a. Uh, Oh boy! Now I'm gonna struggle. I bring up this example. Uh, I think it was it was a map of uh, obesity. I think it might have been a map of elevation. Obesity. I think yeah. I retweeted that. Did you? Okay, yeah, maybe yeah. I saw it from you. Isn't that interesting? It is very interesting. So what he's talking about is uh, they take a topographical topographical map of the United States, uh, you know, that shows the elevations throughout the country, and also a map of where the highest rates of obesity are and they're like like right laid over top of each other so the higher elevation you are less likely to be obese yeah so you saw the the entire rockies and the uh, like the um smokies and alleghenies and all the stuff those those two strips of mountainous territory across the united states and you could just see the exact same reflection in the obesity map you could see the light colors in exactly that place crazy that's fucking weird what in the what in the world is going on you know i I know that like MMA fighters will train at altitude. You know, they like to go up to Big Bear and stuff like that to yeah. train. And I'm sure that has something to do with it. I, I mean, I'm yeah. not, a, not a scientist, but. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, I think about like um, the people that live up there. 
Uh, yeah, like that's the, true. Like the people that live, like the Inca. And those people were, they lived in really high elevation and they were short and they were sort of squat people. Um, what my, I mean, I don't know, man. And may, maybe I'm just reflecting on like what modern people look like. Maybe they weren't fat, like fat, you know, in ancient times. But um, every time I see like a documentary where it'll be up in the, up in the Andes or something. Those people seem like they're little squat people, you know, they're short and they're not fat, but they're like thick, you know? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, especially the women, <laughs> I hear people say, uh, that people were smaller, that we're larger now, mm. um, you know, due to nourishment and things like that. Yep. Um, but I wonder how true that is. You know, I, I wonder if we could, uh, time travel back to, you know, you think of people from like Sweden and uh, Norway and Denmark, they're tall as fuck now, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. I wonder if they were still tall back then, you know? Yeah, it's funny. Um, like, <clears throat> I think about like, um, what's this, What's the guy's name, the Roman historian Tacitus? Or, yeah, Tacitus. Yeah, Tacitus. Well, so Tacitus would talk about that, you know, and like the, the Roman, the Latin Romans were pretty small people. I mean, I like to think about like, well, I can imagine like a whole country of Joe Rogan's. It's like little people. And, uh, and and they had an awesome organized army and they were fucking people up all over the world. And they were encountering people as they went North. that were starting to look very different from them. And Tacitus writes about this. Like you're never going to, he didn't say it like this, but you're never going to believe it. These people have red hair and big beards and you know, they fight naked. Giant. Um, yeah, they're giant. Um, I think, I would guess that even those northern people back then were smaller than they are today. I, that would be my guess. Yeah. But then there's some weird shit about, um, you know, like, I guess I, I basically remember this from ancient aliens. But there's <laughs> but there's archaeological evidence of um, very large human beings that yeah. have been uncovered that are very ancient, and they've mm-hmm. and they've been uncovered in in um, Europe and in North America. Yeah. What's the explanation for that, man? I don't know. I mean, so I tend to believe, you know, I... I, Like eight foot tall human beings. I tend to believe that they, that that there were bigger people back then that would, you know, maybe like, you know, I don't, I don't don't know if I would really consider eight feet a giant from like the the days of yore. Mm. Like that, that to me is like 15 feet tall or something. But but. but if like a, if a tall, if like a really tall, like this... Two standard deviations past the mean. The tall human males at the time were five foot tall, and you saw somebody eight foot tall. That's a giant. That's a fucking giant, yeah. man. I mean, eight feet tall is still big as fuck. Obviously, I mean, you think about Shaq. Shaq's like seven, seven one, something like that. You know who? I, you know what comes to my mind? Who? Young pa- man. Paul White. Oh, the giant in the ring with Rey Mysterio Jr. Yeah, oh, it's like Rey Mysterio is the size of his leg. Yeah, like it probably weighs as much as Rey, Rey Mysterio Jr. Can you imagine going to battle like a whole bunch of Rey Mysterios against a bunch of fucking giants? It's crazy. Scary. Hey, that, that wrestling reference is for you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, makes me think of David and Goliath, you know? Yeah. Uh, you got, you got that slingshot. You still got a pretty good chance, apparently. Can you imagine the balls? Can you imagine the balls? If you were, I mean, like, obviously if you were in a position like when the conquistadors came over and they're like... There, it's like an existential threat to your way of life and your civilization and your genetic lineage. Like where they're going to fucking destroy you. You have no choice but to fight, you know. Mm-hmm. But can you imagine an army of very small people just 
wrenching up the bravery from deep within their souls to go and march against these people that are like, you know, almost twice their size. And like way more technologically advanced. Can you imagine how brave you must have had to have been to just run right at somebody like that? It's terrifying. Especially because when, in certain instances, when they landed, there's at least stories that were told that the Native Americans believed that the, uh, that the Europeans were gods. Yeah. Can you imagine marching against gods twice your size? Motherfucker, the balls on those people. True. They got fucked up, though. I mean, so that's the thing, though, like... When the Europeans came over to the Americas, I mean, you know, it's not like they didn't put up a fight. They put up, you know, a big fight. But, you know, long story short, they got fucked up. Um, Then you think about, you go back even further, and the technological advancement and the organizational skills of the Romans, like, I mean, the Germanic tribes were formidable, and they they definitely caused a lot of problems for Rome. Uh, Eventually, they kind of... uh, took over Rome in their own way. Right. Um, but in those like head on battles that, that the technological advancement and the organization of the Romans just like trumped it, you know? Yeah, that's absolutely, that's an interesting thing. Um, you bring up because I don't remember the origin of like the Visigoths and those people that ended up sacking Rome. Mm-hmm. Were they Germanic tribes? Yeah. Okay. That's pretty interesting because it's almost like you could look at the history as the Romans, um, going to the far stretches of the world and encountering people uh, in those places, even though they're larger, uh, we're able to conquer them by might of mind. That's a very cool story. But the other story, the other way of looking at that is the Romans had this great, well, they had this great Mediterranean life. Mm -hmm. They had this huge trade network with Africa and the Mediterranean and Asia and India, right? And they had uh, good weather and they had, they, they had, you know, the Mediterranean full of fish and olive oil. They were a rich and prosperous place, and they were able to do great things. But what they did when they went to the to the Germanic tribes, they poked the bear. They mm-hmm. stirred the hornet's nest. They conquered them. But you know what else they did? They let them know that they were down there. Yeah. And that they had all this great shit. Yeah. And the Germanic tribes were like, give us, give us a couple centuries, and we'll be back. Yeah. So I've heard, um, I, don't, I don't remember particularly where I heard this, but... One of the, like, motivating factors for the Romans to go do that to the Germanic tribes was we need to do this now while they're wild, you know, before they before they rub up against us and start picking up, you know, the things mm. that we do well. Uh, and that was that played a big factor in it. You know, eventually the, the Romans went up there and they would conquer them. And, you know, back then when stuff like that happened, they would take hostages. But hostages really just meant that you send your... The leaders send their sons and daughters down there, so you know it's not like they're living in a cage. They're not like prisoners. Right. They they go down there and they go to school and they become Romanized. Yeah. But those people are bound to still have an allegiance and loyalty to their people. You know what I mean? Uh, so you take these people and you teach them the things that made you superior to them, mm. and then I mean that happened with uh, I think. The guy's name was Arminius. That's obviously a Latinized, you know, that's a, a Latin name. Yeah. Um, but he was a German who went, you know, was a hostage, went and lived in Rome, became, you know, a, a Roman, in, you know, for all intents and purposes. He was uh, in the military. Mm. He was, uh, you know, a very well-trained and uh, educated person. And he was watching how the Romans treated his people and had a real problem with, you know, the 
the roughness with which they were treating the Germanic people and betrayed them. You know, he like set up this whole plan was like, we need to go up there. Um, you know, I, I forget what the, the purpose was. I, it was probably some kind of like military operation. Uh, but he was in contact with the Germanic people and they just ambushed them. It's mm. the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest. Look at you, man. It's it's a good story. It's a really good story. Where did you where did you read it? I don't remember. Oh. Um I mean that that's like a pretty popular story. Lots of people have talked about it in podcasts and you know, YouTube did you, videos. Did, did you ever uh, get into any of that um there's a oh, there's a couple of these Germanic leaders, they might have been from the Middle Ages. One of them is a woman. Yeah, um, um, so, uh, man, I can't remember, but I think I know who you're talking about, but, yeah, I mean, if you tell the story. I'm going <laughs> to, if I could remember her name, the story might come back to me. Um, so the one I think you're thinking about, uh, because it's a, a popular story, is uh, the one who, she was leading an army, and they got defeated, and they took her as a hostage, and she ended up like killing the people who took her hostage, mm. and um, mm. shit. Do you remember the name? I can't. I can't think of the name off the top of my head. But the thing is, I don't think that she was Germanic. I think that she was actually Celtic. Oh, which back then it's like it, they'd all kind of blurred together, especially for the Romans who didn't really fucking care, you know, mm. about like separating those cultures. Like they're they're barbarians. They're just all barbarians. Yeah. You know what's crazy about the Celts is that. We think about the Celts as being uh, Irish people, yeah, as being you know exclusively from the British Isles, but it, it it turns out that was the place where they where they were last yeah. when they were being when other peoples were taking over, they were getting pushed to the fringes of their realm. They used to be they used to mainland be tribes, that, pretty much the entire mainland Western of Europe, Europe. Absolutely, yeah. you know. Uh, Anyway, man, I wanted to tell you when you were bringing this up about learning the secrets of the other culture, I was just watching this documentary. I did a podcast on a, do a documentary I watched called uh, Quark Science, mm. and one of the episodes of that, like a five-part, six-part series, um, I did an episode on on a different episode of that series um, that, that Jim Al-Khalili guy, he's a physics professor, he was talking about the history of, uh, well, Energy. The episode was about energy, and he was talking about steam power when it first when it first was invented and how it was used. And apparently, the British um, were among the first to to get that technology implemented and in, in industry going as a result. And they started to dominate, uh, you know, more than they you know had ever before, because they always had like a powerful navy, you know. But now they have all the steam energy, and it's not just steam ships. It's all the it's all the in industry that, that the stuff they're able to do mm -hmm. with it. The French didn't have it, and they were and they were starting to lose more and more ground to the British. And they've obviously they've had a rivalry that goes back, you know, since the beginning of time. And uh, uh, there was this guy, and I can't remember his name anymore. But it was he's like got like five names because he's French and he's from he's from that time period. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, he realized that the British had steam power that's what separated them from the french that's what was keeping the holding the french back from being able to compete with them so he basically just goes away and studies steam power and locks himself away until he cracks it until he figures it out and um and so anyway he was able to bring he was basically stealing the technology that made the british empire great in order to try to make make the french 
um, equals with him again. And he did it in such a badass way. He was like, I'm going to crack this. This is a secret. They're keeping it secret. Just like the Chinese. You remember when the Chinese were the only people to produce silk? Mm-hmm. And they kept that secret yeah. from the world that nobody could know it was made by a worm. And, you know, it was like a fucking secret. It was the same thing. The British were like zip lips, you know, nobody can get this technology. Same thing with us in the nuclear weapons, you know? Like, nobody else can have this technology. It was one of those things. And this French guy was like, fuck you. I'm going to lock myself in my study and crack the code. And he did. That's crazy. And he wrote a book. He wrote a book all about it and published it. It was like, the world's going to know how steam power works. The British aren't going to have this secret, you know? Yeah. Anyway. We still kind of keep... The secrets of nuclear, especially nuclear energy. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if it's the secrets, but we limit the amount of people who can have it. Like, we won't let Iran have nuclear energy because we're, you know, supposedly afraid that they're going to have nuclear weapons from it. Yeah. Um, which is uh, a crock of shit, but, you yeah. know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. But that that is, like, we're, the, uh, we're keeping Iran in like a state of almost like third worldness because we uh, we say that they would, we think they're going to use it to develop nuclear weapons. Which, if you look at the history of America saying that Iran is going to have nuclear weapons, it's always like they're going to have them in six months, and we've been saying that for like fifty years. Oh, they're going to have it in six months if we don't keep locking down, and they still don't fucking have it. Do you think that they would develop them strictly for? Defense or strictly for uh, what? Um, what's the word? Just to to, to to be able to say you can't threaten me with nuclear weapons because I have them too. Do you think that is not motivation enough for them to want to develop a nuclear weapon and and use the nuclear energy? Um, you know, resource the resources they're putting in the nuclear energy to do that. I mean, it seems like if you're going if you're going to be working with nuclear power and you don't have nuclear weapons. I don't see any reason why Iran wouldn't specifically want that, even if, even if only, not even to use it, if only just to say, you can't use it against me. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see what you're saying, uh, but I also think that there's a ton of good reasons for them to be like, let us develop a nuclear energy program and we won't create nuclear weapons. You know, like it would be great for them to have nuclear, it would be great if we could stop you know, propagandizing nuclear energy because it's like the safest and, you know, most efficient form of energy we have. But um, they they definitely shouldn't have to ask anybody to do that. They should be able to do whatever the fuck they want. But um, I just but I just don't want to brush the risk under the rug. Like maybe I'm wrong about this, but what the conservative um, position is on Iran is that they're that they're uh, unstable and that they that the that the whole region is unstable. Why? Why is that region unstable? Well, because of I would imagine two things. I would imagine oil resources and the difference in religion between the Shia and the Sunni. No, I don't think that that's the reasons. I mean, I think that oil maybe have something maybe maybe has something to do with it, uh, but I think it has more to do with our influence in that region. And but what about the night deals pictures from e- of Egypt and Iran and Iraq from the 60s and 70s where it's like, it looks like, like America. You know, girls wearing mini skirts and, you know, the, the top, top of the line cars ro- driving down the road. You know, sure. And that, that wasn't the United States influence that destroyed that. Destroyed that. It, was, it was a religious uh, fanaticism that destroyed that. Um, I don't know. I think that 
America and other countries' influence in that area definitely had more to do with destroying that than well you, than the way you just laid that out. Well, you, you might be right. I don't know the history deeply enough, but I'm suspicious. I mean, it all has to do with Israel. I mean, like the so a lot of those places hate Israel. Yeah, and it makes sense that they would hate Israel. I mean, it makes sense that Iran would hate Israel. I don't, I don't know about that, man. Iran. Yeah, I mean, they, they're a part of that region, and the presence of Israel has been destabilizing that region for, you know, since the, the 30s. Yeah, you say that they're part of that region, and I don't disagree with you, but they hold themselves to be different from the people in that region. Because Iran, they're Persians, and sure. they're, a, they're a different lo- lineage, um, ethnologically, and they're a different religion. They don't see themselves as as the same as the Saudis or the Iraqis. But geographically, they're in that region. Yeah. And they, that region is being destabilized by the presence of Israel. And they're, uh, you know, being allied to America and England, uh, you know, is, United Kingdom. Is, is Israel destabilizing the region? Yeah. Or is Israel destabilizing... Is, the the, the pre- previous um, you know system of government in Palestine. What I don't understand what you're the existence of the state of Israel disrupts its ge- the people in in uh, relationships in its geographical area, but the region includes all the surrounding countries. It's like does the existence of Israel here disrupt this larger area around it? You know I I don't know man if. I mean, can you imagine if something crazy happened, like the like California secedes from the United States? Is that going to destabilize the United States? Depends on the actions that California is taking to destabilize. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like it, it, if California seceded and just seceded, then no, probably not. But if California is you know, using their intelligence agencies and their allyship with foreign intelligence agencies to, you know, foment revolutions and coups and mm. things like that, then yeah, that... Okay, I see what you mean. So, so, I guess maybe it's my naivety thinking that the United States is the only government in the world that is... Uh, um, intentionally sabotaging other governments, you know, no. like like you know, creating puppet states and trying to put it put in their own leader, you know, their own backed I, leadership I leaders. Think that, and, uh, America is a huge person who do, or a huge presence in the world that does that sort of thing. But I think that America, you know, the American CIA and Mossad, the Israeli intel, I think they work in concert a lot of the time. Um, so I, d- I do know that the Israelis have been accused of sabotaging uh, the Iranian nuclear energy effort. Mm-hmm. I, I have heard that. Um, are they trying? Are they doing? Do you think that the Israeli government and military are like having ongoing efforts to destabilize the governments of the the surrounding countries, the Saudis, the the Iraqis, the Iranians, uh, the Iranians? Uh, do you think that? that Israel is actively trying to destabilize the governments of the countries surrounding them. Yes. See, that's, I mean, it's possible. I just don't know anything about it, man. Yeah, man, I mean, it's a... And why would they want to? Like, I can understand if you think it's a threat, you might want to do that. But if if you destabilized, well, I I guess I just don't know what what is, what is Israeli's trading relationship like with the countries around them? Do they trade together? That's a good question. I really don't know the answer to that. Huh. I wonder... I wonder if the Israeli, where do they get their oil? You know, they must. They must do some trading. 
Yeah, you would assume so. Mm. Um, why, don't you, why don't you give the Israeli uh, embassy a call? Let's ask them some questions. To, uh, Netanyahu's not the prime minister anymore, is he? Uh, no. I can't remember. Is I don't he? know who the guy is. I don't know. He was... I, I don't know. I, th- I don't think he is, but I could be wrong about that. Mm. But... Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we bounced all over the geographical and, temp- and temporal order so over here. I, I've listened to a lot of stuff about that, but it's hard to like lock all of that information in your brain and be able to just spit it back out, you know? Yeah, it's true. Um, there's so much like revisionist history, man. There's so much revisionist history going on. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just thinking about thinking back at like conversations I had with. Uh, with Mejdi and uh, with that dude that I met in Florida from Saudi Arabia, just the what the way that they explain what's going on or the way they talk about Israel, it's really interesting, man. Um, I would, I mean, I I heard it, Mejdi talk about that kind of stuff a little bit, but you know, I've known a bunch of Muslim people over my life. Um, the area where I live now and where I went to high school, there were tons of Muslim kids. Yeah, um, and. When I was young, I, you know, 9-11 had just happened. And it's not like I thought all Muslims were terrorists or anything, but I bought into the line, they hate us for our freedom, which is nonsense. Um, <laughs> you don't think so? No, I'm just, I'm just like replaying that, uh, trying to put, put myself back in 2001 and like, you know, imagine how I felt about that. They hate us for our freedom. And that's why I was grinning over gotcha. here. They hate us for our freedom. It is nonsense. Um, the person who made me realize that was Ron Paul. What did he say? Do you ever? It's blowback. You can't go in and, you know, fuck with an area the way that we have and the way that Israel has for decades and not expect them to hate you. It has nothing to do with our freedom. It has to do with the fact that, you know, Israel stole their land from them um, systematically and are still doing it and, you know, have them living in an open air prison basically I mean it's like an apartheid state yeah what do we do about that Kyle I mean I've got some ideas but I don't know I think I don't think that America should be supporting Israel I think you know like we should withdraw all support of Israel do you think if if we did that Israel would be able to hold their own against all the surrounding powers um I think that Israel would have to change their behavior for sure. I, I, if they didn't, no. If if Egypt and Jordan and Syria if all of and, them, and if they yeah. all armies marching into the Holy Land, do any they... of those individually? Look, the difference between Israel's military is like similar to ours. Yeah. Like they are n- not a joke, and they would be able to fuck any of those people up any of those nations up individually or even maybe like coalitions of a few of them yeah but all of them together i think it would be a problem for israel and i think that is a testament to the fact that israel needs to change their operating procedures you know like you can't be this this like tiny little state the size of new jersey Mm. and like dictating you know yeah. The, the life of uh, this massive area around you. What, what do you say about in the 70s? It happened t- on two occasions where all of these surrounding countries, Egypt, Jordan, you know, all of the surrounding countries declared war on Israel and marched against Israel. And that was before, that was when Israel was, was relatively new. And mm-hmm. they beat multiple countries' forces handily. And then it happened again, and they beat them again. And I, I don't know if they 
could can keep that up. I yeah. don't know how long they could keep that up, but if they manage to hold their own, then I think inevitably those people have to start marrying each other, start having kids with with each other. They're going to start speaking some mix of Hebrew and, and Arabic, and then they're going to eventually become, uh, you know, a, a melting pot. They're going to become one culture. Does does the fighting stop then? Or or do the or or do the that's not an acceptable solution? I don't think. You don't um, think it's it's is there a other solution? Yeah, I mean, there's got to be some other kind of solution. I, I I don't know what it is necessarily, but I don't think that um, Israel gets to gets to say your culture is you know we're. You have to adapt to our culture. I just, I mean, I think that no, those no. people are allowed to have their own culture. Sure, but but if they're living together for long enough, then their cultures start to merge. And I'm saying that might be the solution. I don't think that that's what the Arab population wants. It's not. It's not what the Jewish population wants either. But yeah. I'm saying, is it inevitable if they're living like... In the same place I don't for long think, enough. I don't. I'll, I'll just put it this way: that's not what I would want, and I don't think that I would settle for that. It's like uh, I liken it to racial integration in this country, and I don't know if that's fair. But it's like there was a time when racism was rampant, and we and bl- blacks and whites were kept separate in every way possible, and that was it particularly true when it came to marriage or children. The social stigma was so bad against uh, mixed race. Uh, mixed race marriage and kids that it was like you know just completely unheard of and but we're living alongside each other and what happens man people fall in love people have sex you know worlds collide and after a while um we start we start accepting it more and there's a whole bunch of you know mixed kids and uh and mixed race marriages and it's you know after long enough it's like not even, not even unusual anymore. Nobody cares. Is that you, like? Look, go ahead. Is it possible to happen over there? Is what I'm saying. I mean, I think it's possible. I just don't think that it's. I, it's obviously not what either of them want, and I don't think that it's good, particularly for the Arab population. I think that if you it, so to take it back to the comparison you just made, look at what has happened to African American or Black culture in that time it's become whitewashed in a lot of ways and it's not been good for them in a lot of ways um you know it's like what do you mean by that african african american culture got whitewashed what do you mean by that it's like you know what happened with the uh the native american <laughs> indians like the, it's like you have to start behaving like us yes and i don't think that that's good i think that you know i think that people have you know, we t- we tend to think of white people as this one big monoculture, which is not Bullshit. historically been true. You know, yeah. I, it's becoming more and more true. Um, but it, you know, I, oh boy, in the past, you know, the 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 I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of what the best word: the tribe, clan, whatever of people who lived over here had completely different traditions and you know things than the people who lived over here Mm -hmm. and now it's just like one you know it's like a a soup i agree with that but i think that the soup the soup is contributed to by the cultures i don't think that it's overrun by one flavor i don't think the white people's 
culture, you know, monoculture is dominating the diversity that's there. I think it's a part of the diversity that's that's there. Um, you know, I don't think it's like you said. You said a minute ago that uh, white cultures, white culture, whatever that means, is yeah. becoming more of a of a uniform thing across all different types of people that might that you'd call white. But I think that's true of the country. The country's culture is becoming more uniform. It's not. It's not white people, you know. It's everybody that lives in the United States. Their culture is becoming more uniform. Uh, I don't think that that divide is down racial lines. Um, it's I just, don't know. Well, it's like we all watch the same TV. We all use the same slang. We all eat the same food. And the the more integrated our culture becomes, to where we can have, you know. Uh, New Mexico style uh, green chilies one day and, uh, you know, uh, Ch- Chinese food from Shanghai the next day. It's like, you know, I have access to that in the middle of Ohio at easily. Yeah. I have access to all the cultures easily. And that's our culture. Our culture is that. It's the hodgepodge where everybody's culture is accessible to us. But it's it's that way for all of us. So all of our culture becomes that. Um, I think that's... I think there are there are things about Jewish culture and Black culture, which are a good, interesting parallel that are that are kept a little bit closer to the chest than I can't I can't think of a single thing from my European background or history that is not fully accessible to Black people, Jewish people, anybody who anybody who who would care for it. Sure, but there are things about Jewish culture. That are kept to the, just for the Jews. There are things about Black culture that are kept kept just for the Blacks. Today, maybe it was maybe it was there was a time when it, when uh, European culture did that. We, we talked about the secrets that we kept from each other earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so so you know I'm sure it's not entirely one sided, but I feel like the word cultural appropriation comes to mind. But you know this predates that concept. Uh, that um, uh, there are certain things that white people aren't allowed to participate in. There are certain things that, that our culture is not allowed to accommodate. And, uh, and it, it comes from marginalized groups that, for whatever reason, don't want to share those things. They want to keep their identity, and that means keeping those things to themselves. Um, and I just think it's interesting that you do see that with Jewish people, and you do see that with black, black people in the United States, both of which have a... I don't know if you call it similar, but they but they have a history of um, being marginalized and uh, having their identities taken away from them. Yeah, they've got a history of being marginalized, um, just like everybody else. I mean, you know, uh, I this is, we're, get, <laughs> we're getting into like sensitive territory yeah, here. Yeah, I know, but, I know. Um, I do think that those two cultures, particularly, have you know. I don't I don't know I don't know what other way to say it that would be less controversial but like a victimhood pass. Um they are the groups of people who are allowed to say look at all this terrible stuff that has happened to us in the past and it's like that that terrible stuff has happened to literally everyone throughout the course of history mm. but for some reason we have to be super respectful of the fact that it's happened to them. I think that's a really interesting point that you point that you're shedding the light, you're shining the light on an interesting part of this topic, which is every cultural group has a history of tragedy, um, and we all there's pros and cons, right? Why do we 
do certain cultures have short memories and forget that and don't want to and don't want to allow themselves to be their identity to be uh, impacted by their past tragedy and other cultures hold on to them for i mean if we're talking about the jews here we're talking about i don't know when the exodus was i think that might have been something like 4000 years ago or something i don't quite i don't quite know off the top of my head the di- the diaspora yes. from so that would be i mean G, you know jesus it's like 2800 bc or something i don't know what it was it was it was after yeah it was like i think it may have been like 400s so 400 bc no 400 ad when the um no yeah yeah when the when the hebrews left um yeah. Their slavery in Egypt. Oh, Egypt. Okay. Um, I, I oh, you're talking about I, Babylon. Okay. No, no, no. No, I'm talking about when um, the the Jewish, the Hebrew people left Israel uh, oh. and the diaspora into Europe and oh, stuff Oh, no, no, like no. I'm that. talking about when they left Egypt, right? So okay. if we go back to the Old Testament times when they... when the I'm not 100% sure that the Jews were slaves in Egypt. Well, I'd love to talk more about that in a second, um, but I'll lose my train of thought. Yeah. So... <clears throat> so they, so the Jews left, uh, according to the biblical tradition, right? They left um, during the time of Moses. And uh, th- they remember that to this day. And they, and they celebrate it. And the anniversary, they remember mm-hmm. their, their people's struggle and this terrible thing that happened to them and their slavery. And to this day, thousands of years later, it's something that is a crucial part of their identity and his, a historical tragedy and a historical um, slight against against their people. And they remember that. They have a long fucking memory. It's so important to them to, that they remember it that they wrote it in a holy book. And they fucking re- memorize the prayers and they teach their kids, never forget what happened to the Jews. Never forget. Some cultures are like that. Mm-hmm. And some have a short memory and they're like yeah yeah well some people came and they raped us and they burned our village down and they took over for a while and now they're gone and i don't even remember their names yeah. why is it that some cultures do and some don't i think that in some ways victimhood is like a bargaining chip you know it's mm-hmm. like uh yeah well this happened to me you know so you need to make concessions mm-hmm. why does that work I think a lot of it has to do with the shift, shifting of culture. And I, I think that it worked less in the past. I mean, it still works. So I think in the past, early on, it was a motivating factor for that group, you know, uh, be it, you know, Jewish people, whatever, whatever the group is, that victimhood is a motivating factor for the group to be like, we need to take care of ourselves. We need to, you know, yeah, never let be this independent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but with the shifting of culture to being more, I don't know, kind, um, I think it is a bargaining chip. It's like, well, look, you know, look at all the terrible stuff that's happened to us. You need to make concessions mm-hmm. for us. And I think, the, and again, this is very controversial to a lot of people, but I think that's exactly what is happening with the Jewish culture and the black culture currently. Yeah. It's like look at you know it's like look at all this hardship that we've been through. We need reparations. You know, compassion is is such a good quality, and when you see it in people, you know it's let's say it's just a shining beacon in the night. It's like compassion is so good, 
but it's also the worst. It, you know, it can be taken advantage it, of for sure. It can be taken advantage. It's like it becomes the the Oedipal mother. It be, it, you know, we're going to protect you for your own good, and it, it becomes tyrannical in no time. Compassion becomes tyrannical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's insidious, man. It is insidious. This is a vocabulary lesson. <laughs> Break out the dictionary app. Oh boy! Nobody pulls out an actual dictionary anymore. You know, I don't. Mm-mm, I got no. the uh, the app on my phone. Yep. I can, yeah. I have, I, yeah. You're right. Do you have a that. dictionary? Fuck app? no, I don't have a dictionary. I do. You I know, just app, Google it. I Google it. Yeah. Okay. I Google it, and I do that. Um, it's funny, man. Uh, I have that copy of uh, the Scientology book, Dianetics. And one of the things it says in the beginning of uh, Dianetics, one of the things that one of the pearls of wisdom of L. Ron Hubbard, which is I, I literally good advice. So I'll just There's share. There's a lot of good advice in there. Yeah, probably. Yeah, he says a lot of horse shit. Too, he says but... anytime you're reading a book, and you come across a word you don't know, don't skip it and don't in, intuit the meaning in the context, but look it up. Mm-hmm. Each time that happens, look it up. You'll be a thousand times better off if you do. And I started doing that, and it's. 100% true, man. You're a fucking Scientologist. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning new words. Um, that happened to me one time when I was a kid. Sorry, man. I'm going on a tangent. You're good. Uh, you know, we were talking about working at the movie theater uh, on, the, on the Eddie episode. And uh, I, I used to try to read shit that was like probably too advanced for me. But I was really interested in religion and mystery. So I remember one day I was reading The Divine Comedy. Right, I'm reading this like medieval masterpiece of uh, of uh, Christian, you know, um, theology wrapped up in a, uh, a story about uh, Dante's trip to heaven and hell. And uh, one of the passages talks about Dante going to wherever he was going and encountering a throng. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "What the fuck is a throng? Is it a shoe? Is it some kind of a sh- like a, like a thong? Is it underwear? What is a throng?" It's like a group, isn't it? It's a group of people. Yeah. yeah. Didn't know. And you know what I did? I was like, I don't know that word. I'm just going to keep reading. <laughs> yeah. And then I came upon it again. Like, this oh, motherfucker keeps you. What is a throng? And why does he keep using it? So eventually I had to look it up. And uh, I never, ever forgot and will never forget what the fuck a throng is. Yeah. Because now I know. Yeah. You know? I don't know. I don't know how. Like, it is weird. I think that I probably know what a throng is from reading it and kind of intuiting it. You know what I mean? Um, because I don't, I don't remember like learning that word like as a vocab word. Yeah, or yeah, definitely not. But yeah. I did know what it meant. You know, you said it, and I, I yeah. knew what it meant. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is you, weird. You do pick up on shit in weird ways. Learn in, in subtle, uh, subconscious, unconscious ways is pretty amazing, man. Yeah, but. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. Oh, we covered so much history. Yeah, we were just all over the place Racism, there. history, the Romans, <laughs> some, some, you know, African-American might, slavery. Might get in trouble for some of it, but um, luckily we have like 50 listeners, so. Yeah, it's true. Um, so I saw you went on uh, uh, the Onion Unlimited podcast. Well, yeah, it was a, so, yeah, absolutely. So Daniel at the Onion Unlimited podcast, um, he started doing some live streams. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like I really didn't have like, much interest in doing a live stream, at least not like for us. I don't know why. Yeah, we basically do a live stream, but it's not that's like true. actual bro- actually broadcasted. We don't do any editing. We that, just that's throw true. it up, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's yeah, 100% right about that. I guess because I thought it was a, an obstacle, like I got to figure it out. I got to learn it. I got to oh, spend the time. Easy. It turns out it's very easy, but mm-hmm. that's what was holding me back. But anyway, he starts doing it. And one of them, I was like, oh shit, he's live. I click on that. I'm watching it. And it's him 
doing like a, it's like a PowerPoint presentation, something that he put together when he was a Jehovah's Witness, and he always liked teaching uh, and learning about um, religion and like getting in the weeds. So he would teach this stuff to classes of Jehovah's Witnesses, and he was encouraged to do that in the church. And one of the classes he he did was called, um, it, the Bible doesn't say that. And it was just going through talking about things that people believe that when you look at, at the Bible actually aren't in the Bible or mm-hmm. things that you think are there that aren't there. And so he went through a bunch of examples and I was like, dude, that's really cool. And I had so much shit to chime in on about it. I'm like, oh, I wish I was on this fucking live stream. I got some, I have so much to say. And after it was over, I was direct DMing him on Twitter and I was just like, I would have said this, I would have said that. I was just drowning him in stuff. And he was like, oh, he was like, all right, mate. He was like, you know, I'll bring you on. And uh, so uh, that's what happened. Um, uh, he was like, I'm going to start doing them every week. You know, you can, you can join me. So that's what we did. Cool. It was cool, man. It was just a, just like this, just a regular chat. Um, we, we talked a lot about the Bible and uh, when we were done, uh, after we were done recording it, um, I was like, because I, I hadn't seen, we'd talked to Daniel a few times, but I never, I never saw his face yeah. and he never saw my face. So, so, so we had that for the first time, like we met each other, you know, yep. but it was like, we were already, uh, like, it's like we were already fast friends. Like we were pen pals. We'd been writing letters back and forth to, to each other during the war. And, <laughs> and, uh, anyway, after we were done, um, I picked up my laptop and I was like trying to show him the podcast studio and I'm like, look over here. Like what's look, look, look. And I felt like. I was in first grade. Show and tell. And I took my, and my mom gets to come to class. I'm like, mom, this is where I sit. This is my desk. These are my things. That's what I was doing with Daniel. I was like, (laughs) did you just do, you didn't have a mic. You just did it through the mic on your laptop. If any of you say that, I had every intention of doing it with, with my mic, Mm -hmm. but there's no webcam on this, on this. And I wanted to like, I wanted to actually talk to him. So I used my, my Chromebook, which has a built-in webcam and mic. And I was like, this is probably not going to work. Because even though it has a webcam, the, it's a, the mic's built in. It's and it's a it's a Chromebook. It's a cheap computer. There's no way this mic is going to be worth a damn. It was great. It's fine. It was yeah. great, man. Yeah. So I I ended up doing it over here on two monitors, so I could have like my references up on one screen. And dude, I could do that. And we talked for two hours. Yeah. I was like, dude, I, we I could do this every week for yeah, two man. hours. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It was pretty. I, I haven't listened to all of it. I'm probably about halfway through. Okay. Yeah. So. It was good. Yeah. Daniel's yeah. a good guy. Daniel toured in a shout out to Daniel on Onion Unlimited podcast. Yeah, man. Um, I know he's a musician. I wonder if he knows anything about the. Have you heard of the four thirty two hertz versus four four forty hertz, um, like the tuning frequencies for instruments? No, but I think he did bring something up about about hertz frequency of something oh yeah i know you guys were talking about um ambulance sirens oh that's right and i don't know if that's what it came up but i think that's that's one thing i remember you guys talking oh and you were talking about um like physics and stuff yeah and like i don't i I don't really remember what made me think of this but uh do you know anything about that no so um you know back Hundreds of years ago, uh, there was no real standardized, like, air, you know, tuning frequency for instruments. Uh, then eventually they kind of, you know, pegged it at around 432 hertz. And hertz is the, the you know, when you see a sound wave, it's got the, the wavy line. Yep. Hertz is the amount of vibrations in, that, in a second, basically. Okay. Um, and they kind of standardized it around 432 hertz. And apparently, 
you know, somewhere later we kind of re-standardized it to 440 hertz, and apparently there's a bunch of um, you know evidence to show that 432 hertz is like has all these like healing properties and like calming properties and like all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, so there's like a big conspiracy about why we would have changed it from 432 to 440. Oh, that's interesting. It it reminds me of uh, a documentary about Stonehenge. Yeah. Um, where they set up speakers and they, they were talking about how this placement of the stones might have might have been deliberate, not only for l- looking at the constellation alignments, mm-hmm. you know how they say, but also because like the, the way the way that the sound would bounce off the stones, yeah. it was creating this feedback or whatever. And I don't remember what the frequency was, but they said it was at a specific frequency, and it, and it like um, people who uh, are exposed to that. Um, have all kinds of uh, symptoms of it. It, it like makes them feel yeah. tingly. It makes them, sometimes it makes you feel lightheaded being exposed to that certain intensities of this frequency. It would be interesting if it was the same frequency. I bet it was. I don't. I mean, I don't know, but I bet you it was. Let's not look it up. That way, we yeah. can believe that it, it was. Definitely it was. fucking was, man. <laughs> God, magic. I don't know, but that yeah, that was just one thing that was in my head while you guys were talking about the uh, uh, while you were on that podcast. Anyways, yeah. it like popped into my head but that's it yeah yeah um i do think it's cool that they have because we just talked about ambulance sirens that they have the white noise sirens that oh yeah i've heard that before too yeah that's interesting too because he said that it's like um you know like like a light traffic light red is stopped because you can see red at the furthest distance it's the color that you can detect at the with the furthest distance so for safety stop is red um and he was explaining that static siren in the same way that that that's white noise sound it cuts through natural sound so Mm. people notice it from you know you'll notice it even if you're not paying attention so it's safer that's pretty interesting man like what is it about white noise that would cut through all of the other natural sounds pick up your attention reminds me of that uh man i can't remember what it was called it was on netflix it was about math uh the guy was talking about you know the architecture and cathedrals and and things like that yes it was called it was called was it was it called the history of maths Mm, i don't know i don't think so it was that british fella yeah yeah um i don't remember what it was called it was a good documentary though we we've talked about it before Uh, what Um, the hell is it called i don't know but he was talking about You know, when you look at those sound waves, when you get the visual representation of sound, that if it's like a pretty noise that you like, it's very like orderly and like a wave, you know. But if you get these like jarring sounds, it's like all over the place. It just looks chaotic. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I was watching one uh, the other day where they they were doing that thing with the sand on the on the um, on the plate. They vibrate the plate. Uh, then they showed some new technology somebody's come up with where they can do that same thing. So just for you people who maybe don't know what I'm talking about, these scientists will study this crazy phenomena where they will take this, it looks like a metal plate attached to a, a machine that vibrates, and they will put sand you know, on this plate, and then they will play a note. Some, sometimes you'll see them do it with a violin uh, bow. Mm. Sometimes you'll see them do it electronically. They'll just hit like a keyboard button. And the sand will automatically organize from chaos into a pattern. And every different note has a unique pattern. And the geometry is not only beautiful, but mind-blowingly amazing that that, is e- that, that even happens. Yep. 
And it's not just when you imagine a wave, you think like Kyle just said about the up and down, up and down motion of a wave. But it's way more complex than that. It's not a it's not a, a wave like somebody's heart monitor. It is a shape like a snowflake. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Somebody invented something like that that does it in water. So the vibration goes into water. And what happens is you get, instead of a, a two-dimensional shape, you get a three-dimensional sh- version. So you get this crazy geometric shape, but in three dimensions. And I, I, it's hard to picture. You guys might have to look this up, but... If somebody plays like a G sharp, you know, I just did a little motion with my fingers like I know how to play guitar. This is a G sharp, but it ain't. I don't know what a G sharp even is. But if somebody plays a G sharp and this 3D shape of a circles within circles, you know, triangles and squares popping off in different areas, perfectly symmetrical on all sides, it looks like a snowflake. And you're like, how is a G sharp that I'm hearing with my ears look like this what is happening what what part of reality is this showing me that is invisible to me normally what the fuck kind of magic is that yeah what do you think i don't i don't really know what to think about that it's crazy i do think it's funny and i'm not 100 percent sure about this i've kind of lost like some of this knowledge from playing guitar has slipped out of my head but i think it's funny that you pick g sharp because i don't think g sharp is a thing <laughs> there's a i know that between you know there are sharps and flats in between every at, you know every series of notes with the exception of between e and f and i think between g and a it's probably i'd pick yeah. the, i'd pick the <laughs> i picked the one example that all the music the music yeah musically minded people in our mm, audience like right. this guy's a that's fucking schmuck <laughs> schmuck okay. i could be wrong I, I think i might be wrong but i i think it is it's definitely e and f i know that there's no mm. sharp or flat in between that mm. um and did you know that like, uh, let's say uh, between D and C, if you're moving up the scale between D and C, if you're moving up, it's D sharp. But the, the exact same note, the like pitch, the exact same note, if you're moving down the scale, it's considered the C flat. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, while or, no, I'm, you, know, you know what I'm saying, but I fucked that up. Yeah. While you were talking, I was picturing like um, music notes written on a, on a page, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, I don't know how to read music. Um, I used to know, I know some, but I really can't read music. Uh, I was picturing it, you know, the way we write musical notes on on uh, on those lines, and then I thought replacing those notes with the those three D shapes, you know, oh, yeah. and you could read music the same way just by knowing which shapes correspond to which notes rather than what line they're on. Yeah, isn't that interesting? That would be like cool. a language, a language of sound, mm-hmm. like hieroglyphs. And it's kind of, I mean, it's not a bad, a terrible analogy. They look kind of like that. Yeah, no, they definitely do. It's amazing. Pretty cool, man. What does it mean, man? It makes me what think. What does it all mean, Basil? It makes me think of that movie, Pie. Yeah, it's, that was a crazy-ass movie. Yeah. Um, so what else you got to talk about? Well, I'll tell you what, I, uh. Somebody on Twitter, I think it was, um, I think it was these these guys, um, the people that published these pandeism and anthology books, mm-hmm. uh, Nugent Mapson. Um, anyway, they put together these books. They're basically just a bunch of different people uh, submit articles, and then he he puts them together and publishes them. And they're, but they're all about pandeism and pandeistic type topics. A lot of stuff about about um, God and spirituality and consciousness and all kinds of stuff that we talk about um, is in there and. They told me about a guy named Bernardo Castrup. Bernardo Castrup. Yeah. So I remember, it's just been a long time ago, but somebody said to me, 
um, hey man, you've got to check out this Bernardo guy. I think you'll love it. Like this is right up your alley. And you know, I was a, it was a good recommendation. But I just had I was got so much going on. I'm always got like lots of people that I need to know more about. So I put it on the back burner. It turns out he, he Bernardo Castro he had had an article in one of these uh, anth- uh, pandeism anthology books, and. So his name came up again, and then somebody posted a podcast that he was on, and so I saw his name again, and I was like, I gotta, I gotta listen to it. So I listened to it, and it blew the top off of my skull, man. Yeah. So I did. That's the episode uh, that I was telling you. I, I got notes ready to go for. Yeah. So I'm going to be doing a Bernardo Castro episode. Um, okay. So Bernardo Castro is, uh, I think he's from the Netherlands. He's got an interesting history. Um, his very first job ever was working at CERN. Okay. okay. His very first job ever, he was working for, you know, a nuclear particle accelerator. Um, He has a PhD in computer science and works, works in art with artificial intelligence and a PhD in philosophy. And he studies uh, philosophy of mind and he's an idealist. So he's a person who believes that all of reality is psyche. All of reality is mental and it's not the same thing as like the um, panpsychism that you know we've we've been talking a lot about in the, in the past. It's not that matter is is also conscious. It's that matter doesn't exist. Mm. Everything is mental. Everything, and that's what he believes. And I've I've always tiptoed along this line that panpsychism and idealism. And I've been leaning towards panpsychism because of some of the people I've been reading. Uh, but when I heard his arguments in favor of idealism, I was like, per- very strongly persuaded. This guy is blowing my mind. Um, I'll give you this analogy that he uses. And, um, you, I'm going to repeat this when I do the episode, but I'm just going to tell you now. He says, you know, we talk about like reality being some somewhat of an illusion. Like whatever whatever we're experiencing in the world, um, we it's not exactly like what the world is like it's just some sort of a representation of the world it's whatever information uh is our brain is interpreting and creating the images that we're seeing and the experiences that we're having it's not the real world that we're encountering it's something like a veil of perception that covers it and we don't we don't get to see what's really behind the veil we've talked about that a lot yeah um where was i going with this bernardo um oh he says what it's like to be a human being is like a pilot flying a plane in a thunderstorm at night. You don't. He's like you don't have a window to the world. You look out, all you see is black clouds and lightning. Yeah. You see, it's chaos. You look out, you 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 don't have really have a window to the world. What you do have is your cockpit. What you do have are all the dials and knobs and measurement equipment that are giving you information about what's really out there. And a pilot can fly the plane perfectly well and land the plane perfectly safely based on the information he's getting from the cockpit dashboard. He doesn't ever have to see what's really there. That's how our our experience is like. We never see what's really there. We don't have a window to what's really there. Everything is filtered through our perceptions. So when we look out at the world, everything we're seeing here is our dashboard. This is a a graphic user interface like your fucking computer. And it works because the information we're getting from the dashboard is going to help us safely navigate our, you know, our, our lives. Mm-hmm. We're going to land the plane every time. Um, and uh, I was like, dude, that is a brilliant analogy. Our that world, our world is like the readings on the dashboard of an airplane. Yeah, I am. 
I definitely think that there is truth in that, but I'm like having some issues with that kind of thinking lately. Let's hear it. Because, and you know, I said we were going to talk about that Jordan Peterson video. Oh, yeah. And this kind of like ties into that. It's like um, this idea that we can't see the truth, you know, um, that w our perceptions are never. Like you said, we know we don't really have any idea what's going on. I don't understand how that line of thinking doesn't lead to there is no truth. It's because it's not that there is no truth. There is truth out there. Uh, it's just that my access to it is filtered through a screen. That's all. It, that's all it's saying. I'm getting information about the truth. I'm, I'm just not getting okay. the, the whole truth. For, I think. Okay. So what I mean, I guess, is for all intents and purposes, for human life, that there is no truth. Yeah, I don't think that. I don't think that. I don't make that uh, leap. Yeah, I know you don't. Uh, but I don't. Uh, in some, on some level, I'm wondering why you don't make that leap. Well, because be if you can't, if you can never really interpret what reality is. I didn't say you couldn't interpret it. You're getting information, um, useful information, from the dash. You're interpreting that information. You're, it's useful to you. That's truth. It, it doesn't matter that you're not seeing the face of God when you're, when you're getting that information. You, you know, it's still useful to you. It's still real. Yeah. Um, and it corresponds to truth. It's like, um, it's like um, this is a stupid example, but it's like, remember that movie with Cher and the guy with the big face, the elephantitis dude? Yeah. Um, and uh, the blind girl is touching his face. Uh, she wants to know what he looks like, so she's touching his face. That's like the dashboard analogy. It's like we can touch the face of God. We just can't see it. We're just It's like Braille to us. We're trying to figure it out with our perceptions, but we can't ever actually see it. And he, he gives this really great story at the end of that episode where he's talking about having this crazy uh, psilocybin experience. Mm -hmm. And he says... Um, he says, when you go deep into a psychedelic experience, he's like, you, first you, um, he said, first you have like a, like a ego death. You have a, you have a clearing of your mind and then you have, um, uh, fractal geometry and colors. And then you have aliens and other dimensions and, you know, being encounters. And then when you get past that, you get to the void mm -hmm. and, uh, it is just nothing but pure uh, mind, and then you go beyond the void. It's like, and there's something there at the root of mind. There's something there at the root of existence. And he felt this, as he's describing, in a really intense psychedelic trip that went farther than any he's ever had, where he felt like he couldn't look at it because he was going to not lose his mind. He was going to disintegrate. It's mm. like he he couldn't. He couldn't directly experience it, or it would have destroyed him, and he knew that. And he said it's, he, he it took him like three days after he came out of that trip to feel normal again. He said he, it was very scary, and he, he knew at that time that he had, to take, he had to take psychedelics way more respectfully. You know, he, not that he wasn't doing it respectfully, but he, just, he didn't know that that was even possible. And it reminds me of like the stories of... Um, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, you, you look, you look upon it and, you know, you, it, it'll destroy you. Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, yeah. That's what it reminds me of. So, I, I mean, I definitely, I know we're, I, so the part of me that is like, you know, what, a, I don't know what the word I'm like, sympathetic to that line of thinking, 
I agree with you. I think that there are obvious truths that we can derive, but I can also never be, I can never perceive things exactly the way that you are. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Um, so I just, part of me does think that thinking that way lends itself to people being able to say that there is no truth. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, which I, I, I don't think that that means that that line of thinking is totally like debunked. You know, I just, um, to me, there is obviously truth. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, and I just think that. I just I just don't want to give people like the ammunition to to be like there is no truth on some level, you know what I mean? Don't you think you have don't you think that maybe not everybody, but don't you think you have to get to that point where you ask yourself that like it is there no truth? Like some you have to get to the point where you're asking a question like that to really understand what the fuck you think and what you believe. It's like the nihilistic type. Like you have yeah. to, you have to have a time in your life where you where you ask yourself, is there any really any meaning to any of this? What, you know, what the fuck? You know, does it really, does anything really matter? You have to get go through that desert, go through that experience, and get out to the other side. It's it's meaningful, you know. To so if you keep people from it, are you keeping them from growing? Are you keeping them from, you know, realizing that truth truth might be relative in some ways and universal in other ways and you know everything is nuanced everything's like that man nothing's fucking simple yeah that's true um i don't know i i guess my opposition to it is the fact that our culture currently is leaning so hard into that there is no truth that there's a bunch of truths you know yeah, um know that because mean. everything can be true that means nothing is true uh, and like to tie that into the Jordan Peterson thing, you know, mm -hmm. he recently got in trouble, got banned off of Twitter and released that video um, talking about it. Mm. And that all has is like centered around his criticism of, tr you know, the transgender ideology that is, let, you know, let, let me uh, uh, repeat this tweet quote so people know what this is about. I'm just going to paraphrase unless you know exactly what it was. Um, I think I could probably draw it up directly he said remember when pride was a sin yes and ellen page just had her breast removed by a criminal physician or something yep. like that something to that effect yep that's pretty close to exactly what yeah, it was it's pretty close that first part is tremendous as far as i'm concerned do you remember when pride was a sin like i understand that you could take that to be a slight against gay, gay pride. Mm -hmm. Like you can say maybe Jordan Peterson is being homophobic, but that's bullshit. Um, pride in general, not just, you know, pride in, in terms of a rainbow flag, but, but pride is a sin. It's one of the seven deadly sins. It's part of the Judeo-Christian tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and, and today, when you hear the word pride people do not take a negative connotation to it in the slightest to be proud of your family to be proud of your you know accomplish accomplishments to be proud of yourself to have you know uh whatever you know um self esteem all that all that stuff uh that this is the first time in human history we've ever applauded ourselves for pride yeah uh, you know it's always been looked upon as something that is divisive mm -hmm. you know because yeah. pride leads to arrogance, and arrogance leads to fucking hell. True. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, and just like what, 
what are these people being proud of? What is this pride centered around? So it's pride is a sin, you know, throughout history, pride has been a sin, but what it, what are they taking pride in another sin? I mean, you know, like, uh, again, that's probably controversial to a lot of people, yeah. but I think that if you think about sin in terms of, if, if you're not particularly religious or open to those kinds of ideas, if you just take sin as, you know, like something I said we when we were both on the Onion Unlimited podcast, that like, if one of the main drives for human beings is to reproduce and you are, you know, engaging in strictly, you know, sexuality that is not going to allow you to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's some kind of a, like a cognitive dissonance there. You've got these internal drives that are telling you reproduce, have yourself live on, um, propagate the species. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got this other, you know, I don't know where this drive is coming from because I don't think that it's um, in any way natural um, to to not do that, you know, to, to engage in activity that's not going to allow you to do that. Well, it's definitely not an evolutionary advantage. It's yeah. definitely not that. That's a, I don't understand how anybody can say that homosexuality is a genetic thing because if it was, wouldn't they not exist anymore? That's a good point, man. How did <laughs> that's you a not, good point. Like, the way that the theory of evolution is, is any kind of disadvantage is going to be slowly but surely weeded out. So how do these people who don't reproduce, how are they still around? It doesn't make any fucking sense. Um, it, the, like, the logic behind homosexuality being a genetic thing, I don't... Someone's going to have to explain <laughs> that to me in a more concise way because with my, you know, admittedly limited understanding of evolution, it doesn't make any sense. Well, going back to your question about what are they, what are they prou- being proud of, what, what, what exactly are they saying... Uh, to me, man, it's like, what does that even mean? Like, we don't even have to talk about gay sex. Let's talk about heterosex. What, what does it mean to be proud to be heterosexual? Yeah. What does it mean to be proud to have a preference about who you have sex with? What does it even mean to be proud? What the fuck does... I just... I, just, like, I honestly... What, what could that possibly mean? I think... I think the only way... I don't, and I'm not saying that this makes sense. Like the actual, the the thought of having pride in being heterosexual makes any sense. But I think the only way that it even came into existence is because in our culture, it's like you can these people can have pride in their sexuality, and you know, it's kind of like a, the demonization of white people over over time. It's like being straight, being heteronormative, all of that stuff is somehow bad now. So we're like, no, fuck you. It's not, you know, I, I'm i going to take pride in it now, which is stupid. I don't think it makes any sense. But um, I think that that's kind of where it comes from. You know, it's like, a, it's a reactionary. Yeah, absolutely. I, I fucking hate, I hate the word normative. I hate the word cis. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so- it, it just seems to, sorry, man, it just seems to me that if, if, if somebody who's kind hearted and compassionate and liberal wants to be fair and equitable and just, and, and, and to do this, to keep people from being disenfranchised, to keep people from being marginalized, how do they, how do they fix that? They create a new marginal, marginalization category and put everybody in it, every, all, the, all the normies, 
Put them in it. Their, their, their solution to not marginalize people is to marginalize people. And it's fucking weird. And the word cis is, is an example of that. Yeah. You're marginalizing a huge group of people. And yeah. the, the fact that a, that a minority group has the ability to marginalize the majority is very strange. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's good or bad. It's very strange. I, I would lean towards bad. Uh, and bad for them, too. Like, um, you know, if you are a minority and you're marginalizing the majority, what happens when you marginalize too far and the majority is like, no, this isn't working for us anymore? It doesn't seem like that's going to end up well for you. Jesus. Um, and I, I think that we are getting to that point, man. Um, you know, just all the stuff that's constantly in the news. Like, this is kind of off the subject of Jordan Peterson in this video, but like, we, I, we were talking about this yesterday when we were at dinner. All of the media attention on um, things like sexuality and transgenderism and stuff like that, it's... I just don't understand why they think that this is going to continue working for them because the things that people care about are not those things right now. You know, if we get to a point where the economy really takes a shit and it's things are bad, people are not going to give a fuck about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be the last thing on people's minds. Yep. And if people, if those people are still trying to push that, I, I see things like not going well for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Um, yeah, this whole, this whole debate is is a first world problem. I mean, it's not a real problem. Yeah, um, I think that the media harps on it because it's divisive, because it gets people arguing, and I think that might be a symptom of the internet, or it might just it might just have been exacerbated by the internet. Um, but it's like they say, sex sells. No, 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 no. Getting people to argue about shit sells, and that's that's what they're doing, man. They're just just trying to keep us arguing. Does it sell? People love it. Yeah. People fucking love it. Everybody loves it, man. Yeah, it, people definitely love it, but I just... People turn on the news I, I every guess, morning and get angry, and they fucking love it, man. But what does that sell? Can, um, it's, like, it's like when you're a kid and you watch a horror movie and you're afraid. It's not a good feeling to be afraid. But you love it. That's why you watch the fucking horror movie because you want to be afraid. It's like that. Can I? Can you make that leap with me? It's like that. I think. I mean, I definitely understand what you're saying. Um, people want to be angry. People do want to. They be want angry. to hate motherfuckers too. Yeah, that's true. They want to laugh at motherfuckers even more. I heard somebody. I forget what it was, but uh, oh, it was that Andrew Huberman podcast mm-hmm. on when he was on Jocko. Yeah, um, he oh, was talking about how. People, you know, they, it was a. He said it was a, an experiment that they'd never be able to get away with now. But people could, you know, stimulate certain parts of their brain to make them feel certain ways. And the one people wanted to do the most when they were in control of it was the area that stimulated them to be angry. That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, and he's he he said it's because being angry is like a motivating thing. You know. Yeah. People say people say that. Um, that it's a it's an energy source, you know, and you can see that like uh, I don't know I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember what was it Rocky was it Rocky where the coach is telling him to get angry I I don't remember but you know what I mean like you get angry and uh, and you you have a reservoir of energy that it that it unleashes it's like 
you could be exhausted, but if somebody really pisses you off, oh, yeah. suddenly you're fucking ready to go, man. Yeah. That's an interesting thing. Like, how can an, an emotion unlock motivation and energy? I just that that that's a a mystery, man. That's magical. That is pretty. It's pretty crazy. Um, for, it makes me think of that uh, that. Bible verse from Ephesians, I think it's like Ephesians 2.16 or something like that, but about, um, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and bro- flesh and blood, but against uh, powers and principalities. Mm. Um, these things that are not flesh and blood, these things that you can't hold with your hands, you know, but they still drive things. Oh, yeah. More than flesh and blood. That's exactly what Carl Jung called the archetypes. Yeah. Yeah. They're motivational forces. They're in- instincts, and they exist to motivate you. Yeah, it's like a what it car- something about like people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. That's pretty cool. Yeah, man. That's an interesting. That's what, you could you could think about that for the rest of your life. You know, mm-hmm. what does that mean? You think about all of the st- yeah, just all of the stuff that drives people. You know, like being anti communism you know like both of those things communism is not a flesh and blood thing it's an ideal it's a power a principality uh and anti-communism as a response to that it's not you can't hold it you can't touch it but it just like fuels so many people i'm really really interested in this idea of uh you know we we talked about the difference between individualism and collectivism and uh, I encountered this idea of a canatus from, uh, from uh, Peter Shirsted Hughes, but it goes back to Spinoza. And Spinoza talks, and he talks about canatus like, a, like it's a drive, it's like a will. And then I, I was thinking about that, because I have a will, you know, but it's like, so does society. Mm. So does, like, the human race. Mm-hmm. And it's scary to me, because it's like, whatever, whatever society's doing, I'm not exactly aware of it. I'm part of it. I'm participating in it, but I'm not exactly aware of it. And it's very strange because it's like there's an unconscious will that con- it's controlling all of these individual conscious wills. And it, it scares the shit out of me, man, because it leads to things. It leads to terrible things. You know, if you follow blindly unconscious will, you end up murdering millions of Jews in gas chambers. You know, it, I'm not saying it's inevitable, but that happened. You know, when when. I don't know how many citizens were in Germany, but hundreds of thousands of people, anyway, mm-hmm. um, followed the followed unco- the unconscious will of the of the Reich. That's what happened, <clears throat> and it's not just happening there; it's happening here. It's happening. It's happening with us, you know. And I don't. And I don't know what direction it's going, and I'm not sure I like it, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely scary. Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely those. Ideals, those non-physical things that motivate people, they can push us to do terrible things. But, I mean, it's, it's on some level, it's like the exact same types of things that push us to do the best things that we do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It has something to do with making those things conscious. You know, it's like, don't do things blindly. You have to... You have to go into it with your eyes open, and it's about making the unconscious conscious, and that's what Carl Jung. I've been reading Carl Jung like crazy, and that's what he. That's what he talks about over and over and over again. I'm struggling. I'm trying to understand what that means. I always, I always understood 
the unconscious part of my, I don't say I, I shouldn't say I always, since I had this mystic experience years ago, I've come to believe that the unconscious part of myself is the God part, mm. you know? Um, so to make the unconscious conscious is to make the God part c- conscious. Like I'm struggling to understand what that means. And I'm, I'm reading Young and I'm reading two of his pupils right now. I, that seems like confusing, you know, like, <laughs> be, like reading them at the same time, you know. It is confusing, but it's been interesting yeah. because Young's pupils take, just like every pupil does, they take their master's ideas further in yeah. whatever way that is unique to them and their interests. And so they do that. This lady named uh, Louise von Franz and uh, this guy named Eric Neumann, and they take the ideas in different directions. Because I'm reading them all together, I get this weird complementary effect where something that somebody says, and it, 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 it's never... One, it's never Jung necessarily. It could be von Franz, it could be uh, Neumann, but somebody will shed light on something that somebody else said, and it helps me to understand it when I didn't at first. Yeah, it's like I get somebody else's interpretation or something, and it helps. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been interesting. I, I've been I've been enjoying it, man. So that it's like uh, having these. I don't know what the best way to the best way to call the best thing to call them is, but it's like uh, these non-physical forces, these you know the uh, the archetypes that drive you. Um, having them, you know, in the driver's seat of your behavior in a lot of ways. Uh, I think what I understand. The, uh, the point of Christianity in some ways, from what I understand, just a lot of the things that I've been listening to is for you to understand the things that are driving you and to like pull the things that are driving you towards the positive and letting, you know, consciously letting those be in the driver's seat as opposed to these negative ones. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I, I, I've become interested in Orthodox Christianity uh, over the last like month. Um, you know, it's been like really like I want to dig into it, you know, and I'm like open to it. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I don't claim to be an expert on any level, obviously. But uh, that's like one of the things that I've kind of heard. It's like uh, you are digging into and letting these uh, these archetypes or these non-physical things um you know i think in 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 that context you would call it you know god you would call it you know angels you would call it whatever spirits maybe spirits yeah yeah the you're you're bringing those things in and kind of acting on you know the way that those things have an effect on you and for the the negative side that's demons that's satan you know mm-hmm. um and you're understanding you know, the, the, the relationship that you have with those things and how they affect you and how they make you behave and the effect that that has on you as a person and the effect that when you behave that way and lots of people behave that way, the effect that that has on society, mm. you know? Uh, so that's very interesting. So there's two things that come pop in my head when you bring this up, and I want to ask you. Um, so there was a... A time not too long ago where you were expressing 
interest in ritual and mm-hmm. in, an interest in paganism. Yeah. Which you hadn't really. I still, I'm still interested in that. Yeah. But. but you hadn't really brought that up before. It was kind of a new thing. Yeah. And then you, now you bring up Orthodox uh, Christianity, which is kind of in the same vein, yeah. you know? So I'm wondering, um, Jordan Peterson uh, has a funny way of describing this when he talks about another Jungian uh, idea uh, is called circumambulation, which I love that idea. But it's the idea that your interests um, shine, that they catch your attention, mm-hmm. and that you're, you're never quite sure what it is about it that catches your attention, so you follow it. Like Harry Potter chases the snitch. It gl- glints and glimmers in the distance like something that captures your attention, and you, and you chase after it. And as you do, you get closer and closer and closer to whatever that thing is that you're really looking at you're really searching for yeah and i'm wondering what it is what it is about the ritual paganism and now orthodox christianity that's glittering for you what is it that brought you into those ideas that was interesting to you um so a big part of and again i don't have that deep of an understanding of orthodox christianity and i mean i think that some people have a you know the, I would say that the people who have the best understanding of paganism only have like a cursory understanding of it because it's I all agree. been lost. You I know? agree, yeah. Um, so, but I mean, you know, the Orthodox Church has been around for thousands of years and it's um, old, you know, it's uh, it's got a tradition. It's got an old, old tradition mm. that people have followed and continue to follow. And it hasn't been changed that much, mm. you know. Uh, that's what makes it. That's like the difference between the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. You yeah. know, the Catholic Church has like altered itself in so many ways, um, and the Orthodox Church is kind of what it ha- what it was back then. You know, right. um, but all that is to say that I don't have that deep of an understanding of it. But one of the things that was appealing to me is I've heard people describe the Orthodox Church as Christianity, but with more of a mystic element to it. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So obviously with the things that we talk about and the experiences that I've had, that like lends itself to my, you know, piquing my interest. Um, but I've also heard people say that that is like a very like limited way of describing Orthodox Christianity. Um, so that that is part of what, you know, what that shimmer is, what that thing that's piqued my interest about it is, okay. the, you know, why, why I'm circumambulating towards that. Um, and, uh, the same thing is like with the ritual, you know, it's like, uh, I just, that for some reason that like reaches out to me, you know, like, uh, not just, obviously I do think that you should, you know, be contemplative about these things and think about them, but I also think it helps to like act that out in reality, like physically do mm. things and say things and having a ritual that like it's not just in your head. It's like you're acting it out. Hmm. It's interesting. You know what it reminds me of is, uh, surprise, surprise, Jordan Peterson. He says <laughs> that, uh, he says that, uh, uh, you know, you are, he said, you know, people say you are what you eat. Mm-hmm. He says you are what you repeatedly do. And uh, that's, go ahead. I'm sorry. It, yeah. Yeah. Well, what it means is that what the things that you repeatedly do, they literally are, um, what, what word should I use here? Um, It's like a no oh boy. This is a terrible example. Hmm? Do you know uh, what a cart rut is? No, right, not so off the top of my head. If you, if you have a cart oh, with wheels, uh, yeah, the right. wheel, yeah, the ruts, yeah, yeah. the ruts in the wheel with the, the wheels leave. 
when you do behaviors, it's like that in your brain. You have these chemical pathways, neuronal pathways that are like ruts that get, it's like a, a game trail. It, it gets worn down and worn down and you can literally construct pathways in your brain for certain whatever, for, for certain ways of thinking, for, for whatever it is that you're doing. You reinforce these structures. You literally create these structures in your brain by repeating and practicing and repeating. Same way you learned guitar. You mm -hmm. built those structures little by little by little. Yep. And um, what you're describing when you say go through the rituals, go through the motions, what you're talking about is exactly that. You have this cognitive idea that there's some value in the idea of ritual. And then you go and you practice the ritual and you and you get those ruts deeper and deeper and deeper and there's a really uh, there's a real way in which you've taken this um this uh, appealing notion that there's some magic or value in it and you literally make it part of your body by building the pathways in your physical brain that mirror this sacred idea that speaks to you that's fucking amazing man it is. And maybe there's something to it. And what I was going to say and why at like when you said the thing Jordan Peterson's Jordan Peterson says you are what you repeatedly do is I was going to you know, I was going to put that into the idea of um not just doing the rituals in the church, you know, in the services, but thinking about changing your patterns of behavior in your everyday life to, you know, uh, following the Ten Commandments, like stuff like, you know, things like that. The actual day-to-day -day practice of being a Christian mm. um, and the behavior that that entails. You know, that doesn't seem, it's not ritual. It's not like there's incense and there's, you know, you're chanting and you're saying, you know, specific, you know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. It's not like an actual ritual like that, but in a lot of ways it is. It is, it is a ritual. It's a daily ritual. Um, and... Once you start behaving in that way, you know, you're you're going to see results in some way, you know. I oh, I don't doubt it. Yeah. You know what you know what comes to my mind is like I I always think of like my my grandma, you know, but everyone maybe if you got a religious grandma maybe you can relate to this, but it's like um I imagine an old lady, a religious old lady, she like says her prayers, you know. She's a Catholic. She says the same prayers on her rosary over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And then let's say that lady finds herself in a situation where she has to be brave for some reason. And if she's practiced her religion, she doesn't even have to think about it. She, In her mind, quicker than the speed of light, something happens that says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. You know, something like that has been ingrained in that woman's brain because she said the prayer a hundred thousand times in her life. Mm -hmm. And she, and a moment comes up where she has to be brave. She's built this physical system in her brain through this process of repetition and this prayer, you know, I shall fear no evil. And she is able to respond to that. And I'm, this is just a completely hypothetical, but I'm just saying, is that a possibility that ritual creates it reinforces the behaviors like you've said, mm -hmm. but creates something physical in her that makes it easier for her to... It's like muscle memory. Like muscle memory. Yeah. She wants to follow this path, and she makes she changes her physical brain such that allows her to accomplish that goal better. I don't know. Is that is that one, you know, 
benefit to religion, to ritual? Possibly. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, I I don't know many prayers. I mean, I know, you know, like the Lord's Prayer. um, But as far as like Orthodox prayers go, the only prayer that I really know, because it's very short, is the Jesus Prayer. Mm. And it's, uh, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, these Orthodox monks say lots of prayers. Uh, That like monk lifestyle is extremely, you know, extremely interesting. These people go to monasteries and they wake up before the sun and they pray, you know, they say the same prayer a million times and then they, you know, they eat their breakfast, you know, in silence, like reflecting on, you know, whatever they're reflecting on. And then they work an entire day of like hard physical labor, you know, a lot of the times in silence, reflecting on the same things. And then they get together at night and they're just like, chanting these prayers uh, you know Mm. it's it's interesting and like that is like talk about a rut you know like oh yeah um but the jesus prayer is uh lord jesus christ the son of god have mercy on me a sinner that's Mm. it that's the entire prayer you know what that like aesthetic lifestyle reminds me of when you said uh you know that that's quite the rut um it there's a parallel to like a military type person Mm. you know Somebody who's, they say, you know, like, we're going to brainwash you, but they don't say that. They say, we're going to break you down, and then we're going to build you back up. Um, but if you if you ever encounter somebody that disciplined, there's, like, a religious level of discipline involved with the military. Yeah. There's a parallel between that monk lifestyle and the military one. That's also interesting. It's like uh, you can train your mind and body to be um, contemplative and reflective and spiritual, but you can also create create the Terminator. You can become a killer the same sure. way. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's interesting that, it, it, like, the outcomes, the 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 way that uh, these things manifest themselves in reality is kind of boils down to the powers and the principalities behind the ideas that you are, you know, forming that rut in. If you form the rut of, you know, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's that's one rut that you can get into. The other rut is I'm going to destroy things, you know, which maybe like a, an overly simplistic interpretation of the military, obviously. But uh, it, you think about if you allow another type of power or principality and one that's much more negative. Like resentment? Sure. Uh, I'm just like my mind goes to like just just like the opposite of Christianity, like satanic cults, you know? Um, I've been reading about a, well, it started with, uh, I listened to Daryl Cooper, the martyr made history guy. Uh, he released, he's got a three part series on Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, and it's super good. Uh, But only the two, only the first two are available. You have to pay for the third one on his sub stack. But dude, if you have any, skepticism about the fucked up shit that was going on with Jeffrey Epstein and the fact that it was definitely connected to like official government organizations. You should listen to the podcast, man, because there's like no question about it. Um, But, but anyways, the, in the second episode, he kind of goes over a lot of these cults uh, and groups that have gotten busted for child trafficking and things like that. And a lot of them are involved with, with governments and things like Mm. that. So that's fucked. But I just, a lot of them are also like cults, you know, like they're doing rituals like this Mm. one, the finders that he talks about super fucked up and weird, man. Mm. 
the and the guy who started it was like a uh, like a an Air Force master sergeant, probably involved with intelligence agencies. Mm. Um, but you know, there's like they find all these pictures of like like a satanic altar and like kids holding severed heads of goats mm. while they're naked and shit mm. like that. Mm. Um, and like you go to a church, you go to an Orthodox church and you're, you know, I, I don't, I've never been, but you know, I've been to Catholic services. So I know, you know, like you're kneeling at certain times, the priest says something, you say a response. Um, and that is, I think anyways, I know a lot of people disagree anymore, but I think that that is for towards the positive. You know what I mean? That is a, that is a, yeah, I guess a brainwashing. I guess you could say a brainwashing, but towards the benefit, I would say, of humanity. Now, this like satanic altar cult child molestation rings, that can get a hold of you too. It's just like mm. the rut that you're building, you know? I agree with that. I want to, I want to, I, I can't, I'm just very grateful to be able to play devil's advocate with you for once. Let me give you this, man. You you painted this picture of the devil worshiping uh, cult, the, the naked kid with the holding the severed head, heads of goats and the blood and all that. And then you talk about the Orthodox Christian Church, and I'm picturing the church. I'm picturing the cathedral. I'm picturing the incense. I'm picturing all that stuff. Yep. I get two images in my head. One of them is this satanic scene that you described. One of them is this you know somber, uh, mystical, majestic church. Uh, both have an altar, by the way. Mm-hmm. Both both involve symbolism of blood and and death and and resurrection. And there's a pagan. There's a. Pa- I guess what, I'm, what I want to say to you is that both sets of images are equally reflective of God and nature. Um, the evil, satanic one, and the, the holy, sacred one. Yeah. Because God is both. And when, when you paint the picture of the satanic image, I can't help but think of, oh, I'll tell you what I think of. I think of the blood, um, the sacrificed animal, and the baby, the naked baby, all as fertility images. Not satanic, not evil, as images of new birth. You know, new birth comes from death, and so there's blood, and so there's this, so there's the sacri- the head of the sacrificial animal. The child is like the Christ child. You know, it's the it's the potentiality, the thing I call God, the thing born from the blood. Um, all of the symbols of Christianity are there in the satanic image, and I wonder what you think of that, man. Um, oh, yeah, apart from the molestation, of course, I, yeah. I talk about it. <laughs> um, I, I yeah, I don't necessarily disagree that there's parallels you know uh that there's similarities but i think that those similarities are probably intentional you know what i mean it's like a yeah like like, like a like, bizarro like the like the black mass for the satanic exactly, church yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um so i think that it's like almost uh con you know maybe you're conjuring the same sorts of things uh but just for different purposes you know what i mean yeah yeah i don't know man i don't know anything about that but uh i just I just thought I just think the imagery is interesting, and I've been just paying a lot of attention to that lately. Imagery, yeah, yeah. I, I think that the Im- imagery is probably similar intentionally. That's uh, that's it could be could be that, or it could be that whatever they're pursuing in both places is you know. God, I don't. I can't even say it because we're talking about the, the ter- most terrible of, of uh, you know shit right now. Um, I just wonder if their similarities are 
something like archetypal commonalities, like the whatever is being sought is the same. The you know the images are the same. One group is is going about it in a completely fucked up way, let's say, but they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to connect with something greater than themselves. They're trying to tap into, you know. Spiritual energies, you know, I don't know. I don't know. What are what are Satanists doing? What are devil worshippers doing? What are pagans doing? It's different from you know I think it has to I think it boils down to the intentionality of it, you know, like what is the outcome that you want to bring? Like why are you doing it? Um What do you think the outcome is that they want to bring? Well, I mean who? The pagans, the the devil worshippers? Specifically the devil worshippers. <laughs> Satanists. Uh, um I think the downfall of good, like the uh, the turning over the apple cart of what is, you know, truth, beauty, and good. And they must think that that's good, that that end is desirable. They must think that. Or do you think they just want everything to burn? I think it's... I think that it is based more on like a nihilistic outlook, like fuck everything, you know? So that could be. There could be. But then there's also that... There's also that... um um postmodern thing you know it's like nothing means anything and uh you know it's like you got to embrace the embrace the meaninglessness and and find meaning in and for yourself and it's all that, that subjectivity and the it, there's it's all very it's all it's all it's confusing i just wonder if, if there's that element to it as well it's like somebody thinks it might actually be beneficial for our future if we abandon all of the previously accepted order of things that's yeah. what the that's what the postmodernists seem to think you know yeah. it's like the, the what comes next will be better like what the communists seem to think what comes next will be better yeah we just have to get through the this transition you know as far as the communism goes i have been thinking that the people who were pushing communism and i, I mean i think that you would agree with this they don't i don't think that they really do care about what's best for us in the long run i think that the goal for the people who are trying to instantiate communism it's central power it's like them being able to control things and the way that they sell that to people is it's going to be better for you it's Mm. going to be better for everyone yeah um but i don't think that that's like i don't think that's the goal for them things being better the goal is for them to be in charge for the elites to be in charge of things. And I think that that is the driving force in, you know, like, we're still doing this kind of stuff, but it's, I mean, we do still, like, communism is still a thing, but now they're, like, pushing, it's like the pride parades. It's like the pride, you know, uh, let's destabilize normal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, That all sounds postmodern to me. Yeah, you know, and it does, but that doesn't—it doesn't seem good, you know. It, it seems no, it, it just—I keep getting this Foucault quote popping in my head. He's like, "It's good for people to be dirty and have long hair, and for men to dress like women, and women to dress like men." That quote just keeps popping in my head. It's like, let's not do anything anybody expects, you know. Yeah, and somehow that's supposed to be good. It's supposed to be some kind of giant leap forward. It's supposed to be empowering and freeing to us, and I just don't understand it, man. I don't either. Because there's a way in which some people think of that that is like not just good; it's the ultimate good, you know. Yeah. And I just don't get it. So, 
I think, you know, we were talking about communism and one thing, one area where that, uh, that destabilizing the norms of society in, in, I think, an attempt to make things easier to see, like I said, the point being to seize central control, to make it to where these people are in control, they're calling the shots for everyone. Um, I, I, do, do the workers of the world know about this? They might. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, it's like communism wants to, they, they pretend that the workers of the world are going to be in power in this scenario. And you're saying, no, no, no. What they want to do is concentrate all of the power in a, in a, in a small group or a single person. So I do think that they, a lot of them are aware of it. And I think that they think it's a good, good idea. Like, I think that they, they trust these people for some reason. But where I was going is that that goal of centralized power can be mapped onto not just communism, but all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they do that is to stabilize the norms of things. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the, to go back to the Jordan Peterson thing, it kind of ties in is he's talking, actually, I have the quote right here. Let me just, yeah, so absolutely. he says, uh, he's talking about these people getting these transgender surgeries and hormones and whatnot. And he says it uh, relegates them to a subjugation to a lifetime of expensive medical complication. How delightfully profitable is that? Oh, God. Yeah. So that's like that goes back to when we were talking with Eddie and Matt about capitalism can be used for the same types of things. It's like we're convincing people that this this is fine and we shouldn't we shouldn't be able to, uh, I I guess, regulate it, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and that these people they're going to be happier in the long run, so they should be able to do this. Um, and I, I don't know. Like I, I, I'm, I have conflicted feelings about that. I have super conflicted, conflicted feelings about that. It's like, should these doctors, you know, if a if a person has a surgery, they have the bottom surgery. A, a person who was born a man has their you know, penis chopped off and uh, has a vagina, uh, a vagina formed. Um, and it's like damaging to them, you know, and they cut and like five years later, they're like, what the fuck? Why did you let me do this? Why did you do this to me? Um, I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like the doctor should be held responsible for that. That what? doesn't seem like a free market. No, no, no. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is obviously a gray area, but... A doctor takes an oath to do no harm. Yeah. And this is, there's a parallel with the abortion debate because, you know, the question is when does a baby have life? When does the baby, you know, have a soul or something? And it's like an impossible question to answer. Um, I lost my train of thought immediately. Yeah. What did I just say? Abortion. It has a... Prior to that, what were we talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, About doctors being held responsible and taking the Hippocratic oath and... yeah. Um, is that a f- you know? Oh, yeah, well, really, all all I all that I was thinking about was how many tomboys I knew growing up, and how much I liked those girls. Yeah, those girls were always more interesting to me than the girly girls because we had stuff in common. We could actually talk. We could play the same games. We could, you know what I mean. And so there's like like a diversity there, a diversity among femininity, and for the liberals who say diversity is so important, to take a. a the diversity of what it might be to be a woman and say, oh, you like throwing a football? Oh, you, you know, whatever. That that tomboy is now potentially going to be 
persuaded or encouraged or at least exposed to the idea that she doesn't even need to stay a girl. She could change. And a child, let's say. And whether it whether it's the child's decision or, or the parent's decision or whatever it might be, um, to say that you're not really that you're not really a girl, you're you're trans, is forcing an identity. Not only is it forcing an identity upon the child, but it's also suggesting that diversity among femininity is a, is a bad thing, yeah. and that we have to fracture it off and make it something new. It doesn't sound liberal at all. And how how a doctor could give a child hormones in, under that scenario, and not and not and not think that they are potentially doing harm, I just cannot understand. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, and I don't know. I guess it it could set things up for. I guess this is a good thing, though, in the way that I think it, it sets. Uh, it up for doctors to not want to provide that kind of care if there's like potential consequences for them. Um, and I just, as a person who's come out of like libertarian, you know, philosophy, I just, that's very conflicting for me because I don't, it seems to me like regulation, like consequences for that would be good. Like, uh, and you compare that to like Roe versus Wade right now. The fact that uh, one of the things that people have been saying is you've got these people who are like hookup call and they're lamenting this, you know, they're like hookup culture is going to be gone. You know, like uh, these basically l- loose women are saying to men, you're not going to be able to have sex with us anymore. We're going to have to like, why is that? He- what do you mean? Well, there's condoms and there's plan B and there's, and there's butt stuff. There's all kinds of things that can be done. Yeah. But you, I mean, you take the point, right? Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, my point is that there's a, there's this idea that uh, politics is downstream of culture, mm-hmm. you know, and I do think that that is, on the face of it, a good argument for like libertarians. Like you, uh, you don't you have to change the culture before the politics will change. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but I think that this is kind of showing that it can be the other way too. You know, like it's not completely ineffective to change the politics um, through whatever means. And have that have an effect on the culture. Yeah. And I think if you are trying to build a certain type of culture, like, is it bad to utilize the state? I don't know. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's bad to utilize the state. Yeah. Um, to enforce. I'm not sure. Culture. Um, yeah, because it. Because culture should be, like everything in nature, a constantly transforming and evolving um, process that is, it's a, basically it's a process of feedback. It's me bouncing off my opinions off of everybody else's and vice versa. Everyone's doing that. So we just have this giant network of trial and, and error that tells us what the culture is and what, it's, what direction it's transforming. And individuals, every individual should have equal power in that process if the government is involved um then it's fiat then it's like the same problem of democracy you have the government who isn't a person who gets to say what what the people believe and the best they can do is majority rules that's the best they can do if the most people think this is right then that's what we should do and i'm not 
I'm not confident that that is a good strategy. I'm not confident, you know, because there's too many fucking dumb people and there's too many fucking assholes. And if we leave in the hands of the majority, if we leave the direction of culture in the hands of the majority, that might be a terrible decision. It, it links back to that Kanatis idea that I brought up. Say so we have a will, and so does the culture, so does the society. But I don't have any fucking idea what the will of the society is doing. I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know what those fucks are thinking. So, you know. So, as a person who sees the mutilation of children as a bad thing, um, I just don't necessarily know that I think that this, uh, like, if there was to be some kind of state action, I don't know that I would think that it was a bad thing. Yeah, I don't, I, I'm with you, man. But if I have student loans. And if the federal government decided to forgive them, I wouldn't think it was necessarily a bad thing, you know, because I benefit from it, I guess. But, uh, you know, the government. But me. But my example doesn't have to do with me benefiting from it. Right. Um, But, you you know, I'm just saying we can both be happy about top down authority when it resonates with us, you know, when it's something that we would, you know, not necessarily benefit from, but like when it. Okay, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but when it is uh, moving towards something, you know, like I said, that reflects good, that reflects truth, Mm, mm. you know what I mean? And that's like kind of going back to these like massive, you know, the massive amount of truths that, um, you know, that thinking in this way that there's this veil of perception and... You know, people are interpreting the the dash, the the uh, you know, the cockpit yeah, lights yeah. and signals yeah. different ways. Um, I don't know. It's like I, I just listen. I agree with you. If we are in the Plato talked about the best form of government possible is the philosopher king. Mm. So if we could have a king, centralized authority, king. But he was also a philosopher, so he's always going to make the wisest decisions. He's always going to look at you know the most important aspects of things before he decides that's the best of all possible worlds if big brother was that i'm on board man but if, but big brother is not man i i agree with you like i think that having a massive federal government it's never going to work out and that is like that kind of a thing is kind of why I lean more and more towards let's just break this fucking thing up. Mm. You know, uh, that way, I mean, no matter what the type of government, no matter what, you know, what the, the organizational structure of the state is, you're going to have elites. It's, there's no way of getting around that. Um, so just let there be a ton of elites and they can behave different ways in different areas and, uh, and, and like, that's kind of what I mean in, in that, like, if you could break these things up and have them be smaller, I just don't know that I, like, if that happened, you know, and it's like, you go to Florida and they don't have COVID restrictions. They don't have, you know, you've got Ron DeSantis making laws that says, no, you can't, you can't teach little kids about sexuality. That's where I want to be, you know? And I think mm. that that state power facilitates yeah. that yeah well you're right about that um see i think that there are universal truths and i think there are always going to be people that are naysayers that are going to go against you there's always there's always going to be that so 
as long as the majority recognizes the universal truths, the minority can go fuck themselves. But I'm struggling with this, Kyle. Um, it's like we're talking about the welfare of children, and I, I have a hard time thinking that there's any anybody in the whole world that would disagree that protecting them is a good thing. I guess we our interpretation of what protecting them means yeah. is different, and that's that's the problem. Yeah, you know? because they're, these people, these these trans activist people, I think they really think that they're protecting children by offering them this panacea yeah. of, of their identity. I think that, I agree with you that I think the people on the ground, the normal people, and this is like, uh, you know, getting into like conspiracy type shit, I guess, but I think that a lot of the normal people do think that. It's like, oh, well, they're con you know, they've got this confusion and we need to, you know, I get, indulge that, I guess. I don't know. Mm. I don't know what way to put that that makes more sense. But we need to allow them to reject reality um, so that they feel better about themselves. Um, mm. But I, I suspect that the people who formulate these ideas and push them, you know, the mass of people don't think for themselves. They get their ideas from intellectuals, from the elites, uh, and then they run with those. I think that the elites and the intellectuals who are formulating these ideas uh, are probably formulating them for more sinister purposes. Mm. I, I believe that. I mean, well, in that in that sense, then uh, you know, diversity is good, and uh, that's maybe that's that's the solution. Just compete more competing ideas. Um, you know, I don't know. How, I don't know how you stop the monopoly effect. If if I, if the, all the elites are, are on the same page, how the fuck did that happen? Well, I don't man? think that they're all on the same page. I don't think that that's true. Um, I think that. A lot of them are on the same page because what will benefit this elite will also benefit mm, this one. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that they're all on the same page. I think that there's a lot of competing interests and, you know, you've got elites taking out other elites because, mm. you know, for whatever reason. Um, I heard, I forget where I heard it, but the Sackler family, you know, they are a big, they were involved in, what's the when, you know, like medicine, producing medicine, pharmacology. Pharma, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, you know, they made t billions and billions of dollars in that. And apparently up until like around the 90s, they were like, they weren't involved in politics. They didn't, none of them were holding office, but they've got so much money and influence that they were the most powerful family in America. Mm. And like, apparently they kind of fell from that. And, you know, because a group of other elites kind of, you know, took them out of that, you know? Mm. Um, so that group of elites, they had common interests, you know? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I just think ba basically I can't imagine myself five years ago or even like, I don't know, two years ago saying what I did about like Florida, like, uh, like make Ron DeSantis the king of Florida. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I don't think that, I don't know that I think that that's bad anymore. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because Ron DeSantis is the king of Florida, yeah. and and the and you know Dewine is the king of Ohio, and in a manner of speaking, the governors are supposed to be the president of each state. Yeah, and the way this country was established was intended to be 
that was the highest level of authority in the country. Mm-hmm. The the unity of of the federal government was was loose and um, not and not powerful. And in fact, the, the level of taxes that funded the federal government was um, was minuscule compared to the, what was what was needed for the states and the municipalities for the longest time. Um, and what what's changed is the federal government has assumed authority over all fifty states, and that that that's was never the intention. It, it's supposed to be like 50 states, mm-hmm. sovereign states, bound together by, you know, a common, a common, well, for trade, for trade and travel, basically. Yeah. Um, the, the president of the United States is, is never supposed to be the king of the country. The governors are supposed to be the presidents of, of sovereign states, and that's how it should be. And everything would work better if that was the case. Would Agreed. be much more like what you're like what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how how we, how do we get to that? We got to get one of these fucking states to secede. It's man. it's state it's a, it's about state power and about capping the the power of the federal government. The problem is the people that get to vote on that are senators and congressmen. They're federal fucking government employees. That's the problem. Yeah. All right. We're at two hours. I want to. I want to plug this really quick before, uh, unless you have anything you want to add. No, not really. So I told you that I was listening to Bernardo Castrup, um, and I did, I'm going to do a podcast on him. When I was running, I was running outside listening to the podcast, and he says there's a. He's talked about Carl Jung, which I thought was pretty cool, mm-hmm. and he said there's a little book that Carl mm-hmm. Jung wrote called Answer to Job. He said it's a little book. It's like you can read it in an afternoon. And uh, as soon as I got to the point where I was tired of running and I had to walk for a spell, I just pulled out my phone. I ordered it on Amazon, and it showed up the very next day. So I've got answers to Job. Bernardo Castrop told me in this podcast that this book contains the meaning of life. Okay. (laughs) And it's a short read. So guess what, you guys? I'm going to read this thing. I'm going to figure out what the meaning of life is, and I'm going to let everybody know. You're going to be in on it. I'll tell you that I read so slowly that that I would not be able to read that in an afternoon. No, no. I mean it's a short book. I, if I could like devote an entire day, I could probably read that in a day. But I couldn't read that in an afternoon. I read fucking slow, man. Do you? Yeah, dude. I don't read fast. I remember the first time I realized that is we were reading. We you were up here visiting. I think I lived up here, but you were just up here visiting. Yeah. And we were reading the uh, Anne Rice interview with the Vampire series. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we, you know, they're similar sized books. But I looked over. I was like, dude, he is way farther into that book than I. <laughs> oh, am. I don't remember that. I yeah. do, man. I, I was like, fuck, I read slow. It's hilarious. All right, I got a piece super bad. You have a small bladder. Wrap this up. All right, you guys. Hey, thanks for hanging in there. This was an interesting conversation. We We talked about all over the place, a little bit of everything, which is the the most fun, I think. Yeah. So, uh, you know, thanks for enjoying the roller coaster ride with us, you guys. Adios. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work thinking it's hard and full of uncertainties but i'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze see what i did there let's find out together in the next episode